Thanks, Rob. Good morning, guys. So good to be together, and I am so looking forward to this baptism this afternoon. Just to give some clarification as to where we'll be, we're at Torrance Beach. If you know where Perry's is and Lifeguard Headquarters, those are the buildings down to the bottom of the beach. We'll be to the left of that, and look for a blue pop tent in our church banners. Uh, That's where we'll be, and uh, we've got 10 people signed up to get baptized And uh, if it's like a baptism we've had, there's probably going to be a couple more. So maybe you'll come down, you'll see, and you'll realize, I need to be baptized. And uh, so be prepared for that. Maybe bring some swim trunks or something. Um, But look, baptism is a bold declaration um, that these people will be making that, uh, I like to say, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. Jesus has transformed these lives, and it is being demonstrated in a powerful and unique way that God has commanded us to do, which is to be baptized in water, and uh, I just can't think of a better way to celebrate uh, the life that we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So last week, we finished 1 Peter, and this week, we're going to begin 2 Peter. Uh, This is the second letter, obviously, that was written by the apostle, written a few years after the first one, so right around the time of 67 to 68 D is when you could date this, which is shortly before Peter's death. And so the Apostle Peter is nearing the end of his life, and he's very heaven-focused, right? And if 1 Peter was heaven-focused, then 2 Peter is even more heaven-focused. And why is that? Well, it's because 2 Peter is written later than 1 Peter, (laughs) Because Peter understood that every day that passed was another day closer to him being in that eternal dwelling place that is called heaven, where he would be reunited with his best friend and savior, Jesus Christ. He was one day closer to that moment, and he couldn't wait for it. But what he wanted to do before he would leave this earth is he wanted to make sure that those who remained alive after his death, that they would know without a shadow of a doubt what the true way to heaven was. And therefore, he writes this letter to remind Christians of gospel truth. And you're going to see that word remind come up again and again in this letter. And we'll be studying things right that, that we might already know. I like to tell myself that I'll never outgrow my need for hearing the gospel. You might be hearing things in this series, this letter, that that you've heard before, but again, we want to keep studying the things we already know, but maybe you don't know them. Maybe these are going to be new revelations to you, but whatever it is, we want to be reminded of the truth that is found in the knowledge of Jesus, because We're like sheep, right? We're prone to wander. And if you're like me, you can forget. We're prone to the forgetfulness of the wonderful salvation and the security that we can find in Jesus. We can get our eyes off like Peter did when he was in the storm with Jesus. He was looking at Jesus and he was standing on the water, but as soon as his eyes got off of Jesus, what happened? He sunk, right? So we want to keep getting our eyes back on Jesus in this book will help us to do that. So let's start off the second epistle in verse one where we read this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. 
So there it is. Peter's introducing the fact that he's the one that is writing this letter. And let me remind you a little bit about who Peter is. This is Simon Peter. He's the servant and the apostle of Jesus Christ. And each way that Peter identifies himself right there can just speak volumes, right? So let's look at each one, right? The first one is Simon, and that's his birth name, Simon Bar Jonah. That's probably what his mom would call him when he'd get into trouble. But Jesus also used that name Simon whenever Peter was getting out of line. And he seemed to always get himself into these situations where Peter needed to be called out, right? Simon, you know, come on, man. And Jesus, even loving Simon for who he was, this hard-headed guy gave him a nickname, gave him the name Peter or Cephas. This is the name that Jesus gave to Simon in the same way that Saul was given the name Paul because of the transformation that came into his life when he met Jesus. Or in the way that James and John were called by Jesus Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. And it's probably because they had a little bit of a quick temper. That one time they tried to call fire down from heaven upon the people. So Jesus called them Bonerges. And Jesus gave Simon that name Peter or Cephas, and it means rock. And Jesus said that he would build his church upon the rock, the Petra, the strong foundation that is Jesus. And Peter, the Petros, the smaller rock, would be used in great ways to build upon that foundation that is Jesus Christ. And, and I, I say that, there, there's two words when uh, after Peter confessed that Jesus is, a, is the Christ and he says, you are called Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. There's two different words there, Petra and Petros. It's important because we have to understand that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. Peter would be appalled to think that people would later believe that the church was built upon him. No, the church is built upon the rock of ages, the one we just sung about, Jesus Christ. That's why Simon Peter is also called a servant and apostle. See, he was a servant, it's that word doulos, the bond slave of Jesus, meaning that he was willing to do anything for his Lord because he loved him. He was a servant of Christ. And his master desired that he would make him an apostle. And an apostle simply means one who was sent with the gospel message. He was one who would establish those early local churches by giving them the true gospel message that Peter had received directly from Jesus Christ, whom he had seen as an eyewitness that he had been risen from the dead. So Peter was a servant. Peter was an apostle. This is who wrote the letter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And we could go into how the most important identification that I think Peter would have found was not Simon, not Peter, not even servant or apostle. But out of that name and that introduction, I think that the name that Simon Peter would have most identified with is Jesus Christ. 
It, it, it's a telling question to ask ourselves. If we were writing a letter to a group of Christians like this, how would you introduce yourself? What would you say about yourself? And whatever it is that you would say, I would hope that it would all need to be in connection to Jesus Christ. That at the very end of it all, however you identify yourself, that you would be identified in Jesus Christ. That that would be sort of the the covering over all that you are. And so that's who this letter is written to. Still, in verse 1, we were reading um, that Peter wrote this letter, but, but who's he writing to? Second half of verse 1 says, to those, who have, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, who's that? Who's he writing to? Who are the those in this letter? Well, that's you, right? And that's me, and that's all believers in Jesus Christ ever since this letter was written as Peter, when he wrote this, was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he penned these words. Now, what does Peter say about all those believers in Jesus Christ? He says, we have obtained a faith. We have received something from Jesus. We have come to believe something about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. You know, faith in the Bible is to described like this. Hebrews 1.1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when Jesus was with Peter, he says, you know, you're blessed that you believe in me, but you've seen me. And Jesus said, how much more blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe in me? Look, we could believe the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter who was with Jesus, but none of us in here have ever seen Jesus in the flesh. Yet there is substance and there is evidence to the fact that he was a real man who claimed to be God and is God, who died on a cross, who was buried, who rose again, and who ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper. We've obtained a faith that if you've believed that, you have received from God faith. And do you notice what Peter is getting at when he says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I so love that song that we sing this morning, same God. We worship the same God as the Apostle Peter, the same God that parted the Red Sea for Moses. That's our same God. You can go through the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 and see all the different men and women of faith throughout God's redemptive plan, and they all had faith in the same God that we have faith in. And if he could do what he did for them, then he could do whatever it is that you need that you call upon him to do for you. He's the same God. We have the same faith that Peter had. And this faith puts us on equal standing with him. He's saying we are all on the same levels. All believers have equal acceptance before God. Isn't that profound? That we have the same faith as all of the apostles of Jesus Christ. 
It's often been said that the ground is level at the cross. You know, a couple weeks ago when I was teaching on um, the calling of a pastor and the role of a pastor in a church, and I came down off the steps and I got down on the floor, I, I sensed from a lot of people how that spoke volumes. Because I'm not up here, you guys. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I have some sort of different, you know, higher faith than everyone. I am just like you. I'm a man who wrestles and struggles with sin just like you. I'm a man who needs Jesus and for the blood to cleanse me, to wash me thoroughly. I'm just like you. You are just like me. We are all just like Peter. And we have the same faith that is of equal standing. The ground is level at the cross. So this statement that Peter gives of having a faith of equal standing, I, I think it's proof of Peter's sanctification, that he's becoming more and more like Jesus. Because how many times do we read in the Gospels where Peter is in competition and he's in rivalry with the other disciples? All those bozos, right? They're going to deny you, but me, Lord, not me. Or how they were arguing with one another about who's going to sit at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. And they're getting their moms involved, arguing about who's going to be able to take that spot. Now Peter's saying, we have equal standing with one another. He knows that he's about to die. Even when Jesus told him how he was going to, he's like, well, well, what about them? Don't worry about that, Peter. Worry about your standing before God. Now, how is this possible? How do we have equal standing with the apostle Peter, with all of the apostles, with all the saints throughout history who have had faith? How do we have that kind of equal standing? Look at the end of verse one. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, often the reasons for why there is comparison and competition within the body of Christ is because we are too self-righteous. We like to measure our spiritual standing by comparing ourselves to other people, especially other Christians. But guys, that's just a trap. Because look, you can always find somebody who is less righteous than you. And you can always find somebody who is more righteous than you. So either you're going to think too much of yourself or you're going to think too little of yourself. But there's to be only one measurement, one standard of righteousness, and that is Jesus. That among followers of Jesus, our only way that we measure ourselves up against somebody is to Jesus. And guess what? He humbles us all. He humbles us all. Jesus allows us to think of ourselves as we ought to. See, Peter knew that his own righteousness was like filthy rags to God. But Peter also knew that he stood in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of the cross. Peter was a man with a nature just like you, with a nature just like me, who needed a righteousness outside of himself if he was gonna be justified in the sight of a righteous and holy God. And thanks be to Jesus Christ that Jesus is righteous. 
that he had the right standing before his holy father. And that the father sent his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross, which would bring about an exchange. That our faith is in a person. Our faith has an object that we place it upon. See, our faith is in who Jesus is and in what he has done for us. And if you believe that Jesus is God and man, fully God, fully man, who died upon a cross for your sins and rose from the dead, if you believe that in faith, an exchange has happened. Do you know that exchange? Your unrighteousness for his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. God sees us as he sees his son, which is fully righteous. Which means that if we're all looking at Jesus for our standard of righteousness, then we have equal standing. Do you understand what that means? That means that every single one of us has to say this to Jesus. In you and only in you can I be righteous. We all have to say that. Now, who would have thought that the greeting of the letter would rid us of the self-righteous sin of comparison and competition among believers? Isn't that amazing? A lot of times when we're in church, we often think, oh man, that person really needs to hear this. <laughs> if only my husband were here, right? It's like, right? We all need to hear this. We all have equal standing as sinners. We all have equal standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you have obtained faith in him. Amen? There's still more to look at. Verse 3 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I've shared this with you all before, but this is one of those truths that I learned early on when I was studying the Bible, is that I learned that if you go through all of the greetings throughout the New Testament, you'll often see those words in some form, grace and peace. And something that was pointed out to me early on is that grace always comes before peace in all of the greetings of the New Testament. And why is that? The reason is that grace has to come before peace. It has to, because you cannot experience peace that comes from God until you first receive the grace that comes from God. Do you want peace in your life? I think everyone would say they do. We're all seeking peace. We're all seeking that tranquility, that life where you're just at ease and you're just at rest, that peace that comes in the person's life. You can only find true and meaningful peace in the grace of God. And that comes to you by the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might find a little bit of generosity here. You might find a little bit of peace here. But you won't find grace and peace multiplied, as it would grow exponentially in your life unless you have the knowledge of God and that you know what Jesus has come to do for you. And so that's the greeting. Now we get to the first promise of the letter, and right out the gate, like Peter's 
like packing a punch. He's just like not holding back. Right out the gate, he says this in verses three four, through four. And this is the rest of our text for this morning. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That right there is what I like to call a gospel mouthful where Peter just lets it all out. And it, it sounds a lot like something that the Holy Spirit would inspire, doesn't it? It's just too wonderful. It's too beautiful, these words that are spoken. And we're just going to attempt to even just scratch the surface of all that is here. This is a promise that every time I read, I just feel like I'm discovering whole new depths of its meaning. But it says here that we have been granted something. To be granted means that you've received a gift. We use the word grant in the English language to refer to a big gift, like a huge donation. That, and that idea of being granted something, it's a very generous gift with no strings attached to it. So we've been granted something huge. And you see what you've been granted? It says there that if you've come to the knowledge of God, that if you've placed faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then you have been granted something. You have been granted all things. All things. Now, there's nothing technical there in the original language. All means all. Everything is yours in Jesus Christ. Everything, without exception, is yours in Jesus because his divine power has made it all. And if his divine power has made it all, he's given it all to you. His divine power has granted to us all things, but more specifically, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory in excellence. This means that anything and everything that pertains to life and godliness is yours in Jesus Christ. There are two very important things that we need in life as human beings. We need life. Life is in the blood. And we need godliness. And God has granted to us all things to help us in both of those areas. And not this life only, but in the life to come. We have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it's become yours through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This means that when we put faith in Jesus, we are invited to partake in God to partake in the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In all of who he is, in all of what he does, he has invited us all into it. Your life, if it was purchased by the blood of Jesus, you were redeemed. If you've put faith and said, life is in the blood, as Rob said during announcements, 
If you believe that the blood of Jesus Christ covers over your sins and makes you righteous in the sight of God, then you have been invited into all things. In fact, you have been called to his own glory and excellence. Glory and excellence. Now, here's where I tried to think of some illustration, right? Like, like the richest family in the world invited you in to inherit all of their possessions, all of their wealth, all, all the things that are associated with their great name, it's yours. They just invited you right into it. But that's just a lousy illustration for what has been given to you by the divine power of God. Who cares what some richest family in the world might invite you into? <laughs> My God owns cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> All things are his. I like what Ben said a few weeks ago. Hey, you, that's my dirt. <laughs> right? All. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everything belongs to God. He's the God of heaven and earth. All things were created by him and for him and to him. It's all for him. And so if you're in him, it's all yours too. It's all yours. Now, I, I understand that this can all sound a little too lofty. It can all sound kind of spiritual, right? Let me break it down a little bit more for you. Essentially, this is what Peter is saying to us. You can live the very best life. Everything that you have been given has been given to you by God. And all things that are God's belongs to you so that you can have the greatest life that anyone could ever live. You can live a life that is well worth living. And you can live the godliest life. Everything that you need, even the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is yours so that you can live with incredible godliness. You can live a glorious and excellent life of godliness in Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking right now as I say that, sounds nice, preacher. <laughs> if only you knew me. Yeah, so? The ground's level at the cross. You do believe your righteousness is from Jesus Christ, don't you? All things are yours. You don't believe that? The God who made you, who gave his only son to die for you? If he gave his only son to die for you, what else would he withhold from you? You can have the very best life. And by the Spirit of God dwelling in you, <laughs> you can live the godliest life. And that's what we're going to get into now. Because this is possible, friends. You can have this kind of life that Peter is describing. You have been granted something more. And Peter is also saying this in verse 4. God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful 
desire. See, if you understand the incredible promises of the Bible, you can see how it really is possible for you to live the fullest kind of life, a life that is godly in Jesus Christ. That is the fullest kind of life, isn't it? A life that is godly in Jesus Christ. It's possible because he's granted us two essential things to make that happen. How are we supposed to live the very best life, which, to, which is to live a godly life in Christ? How is that even possible? Because again, we know, we, we know ourselves. We really know ourselves. We've been given two essential needs. We've been given the word of God, and we've been given the spirit of God. You guys, this is all you need. The word of God and the spirit of God. The word of God is his precious and very great promises. In fact, it says in Colossians that he, or Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus speaks and it is. And we have God's living word, the scriptures for us. They're his very great and precious promises. In fact, we're reading them right now. We're listening to them right now. And if you've been hearing these promises this morning, they are so powerful that they can in fact produce faith in you. Romans says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. As you sense that welling up within you, yeah, I, I, I can. I can live the very best life. I can live a godly life in Jesus Christ. That's faith rising up in you that comes by hearing the very great and precious promises of God. But not only have we been given the word of God, but we have been given the spirit of God. This is why we, we find it so essential as we've been going on Wednesday nights talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible is one thing and, and the Bible is marvelous, wonderful. And, and if you believe it in faith, uh, basically all, all you can do is, is this, is if God's word says it, then I can believe it. In fact, we can come to God and we can say, God, you said it, so do it. Not, not in some sort of flippant way, like a reverent way, but God, you said it. You've said it in your word. You said that I can have a godly life in Christ. God, you said you would do that in my life, so do it, Lord. And he'll do it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give out liberally, without reproach, to anyone who asks. People often say, wow, pastor, you look so young, you have so much wisdom, why is this? It's because when I came to James and it said, if any of you lacks wisdom, which I did, but if you ask God, he'll give it, he'll pour it out on you. I said, God, like you gave to Solomon, would you give me wisdom? It's the same God, you've done it for him, you can do it for me. You can ask God, God, I want wisdom, you said it in your word that you would give it, so Lord, will you give me wisdom? And he'll do it. God's word is powerful, but it's the spirit of God that makes it alive. It's the spirit of God that makes it sufficient for us. 
See, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. You need nothing more than the word of God and the spirit of God. I like to say that the Bible has everything in it that you will ever need to know about God and everything in it that you will ever need to know about yourself. Look no further than the word of God and then ask the spirit of God to make it real in your life. Bring the real you to the real Jesus. There's no stopping what can happen in your life. See, the spirit of truth is the one who will teach you all things. He is the one who is the divine power that made you born again. He is the one that has made you become a partaker of the divine nature because literally the Holy Spirit dwells in you. If you were here on Wednesday, where's the Holy Spirit? In you, right? Not up there. Did you forget since Wednesday? Where's the Holy Spirit? In you, so that you are a partaker of the divine nature of God. This doesn't mean you're God, but it means God dwells in you. That is, that's, yeah, he's in you. And if the word of God's in you, and if the spirit of God is in you, then is it really that hard to believe that you have all things? You've been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness. You can live a better life. You can live the best life. You can live a godly life in Jesus Christ. And just as I say that I understand how people would want to misconstrue those words, I understand as we'll get into chapter two that there are false teachers who will twist the word of God to their own liking and use these promises for their own self-focused desires. See, when, when I say you can live a life that is full of all the things that make life wonderful, when I, when I say if God's word says it, you can believe it. If he promises it, then it's yours in Jesus Christ. Guys, that's only true if you're living for the glory and the excellence of God. Peter's not promising cars and houses and large investment portfolios. Peter's not promising a life of a clean bill of health. Did you study 1 Peter with us? Right? I hope you know that the Bible also promises suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. No one's, no one's being, God, you said it, so do it. right? Let me say that again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, isn't that what we've been talking about? All things have been given to you so you can live a godly life in Christ. So, so if you want that, it's promised to you with persecution, with suffering, with counting the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. Well, you'll be pushed even to the fringes of society. Wonderful if you are accepted, but don't be surprised when the fire trial comes upon you as though something strange is happening to you, right? We've been granted the very great and precious promises 
of his word. The greatest of which are in the second half of verse four. You have become a partaker of the divine nature and you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. See, the world will tell you how you can live a happy life but it has nothing to do with what we may or may not physically possess. It has everything to do with what we spiritually possess. You have been granted a life that has escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are a partaker of the divine nature, Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. Church, we have everything. Let me remind you, in case you forgot in the last 30 minutes, everything is yours. Everything. The word of God and the spirit of God is all that you need. What else do you need to have a life that is worth living? But some people will think it's not the best life one could ask for. And that is because they are caught in the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. People would rather have death and sin than life and godliness. People would rather have corruption over excellence. People would rather have this world instead of the glory that is to come. How many people view the word of God as foolish and don't know that the Holy Spirit is willing to indwell them and give them a life full of love, grace, and peace, and truth? So until you come to a place where you understand this, that sinful desire is what has been keeping you from God, and it's what's been killing you this whole time. And until you repent and turn to the knowledge of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then you will not have everything you need. You will have a shell of a life, and that is all. You won't have peace because peace comes from grace. You won't have life because life comes from the giver of life. Life? That's mine, says God. You won't have godliness or righteousness, for that can only come through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who gives us equal standing before God with all those who have obtained faith. So is this the faith that you have obtained? Do you live completely for Jesus, your God and Savior? Do you live by the very great and precious promises of God's word? Do you live by the awareness that his divine power has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness? Do you know that you are a partaker of the divine nature because the spirit of God dwells in you when you believed upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If that's so for you, you have been granted all things. It's all things for you. It's all things for your marriage. It's all things for your family. It's all things for your work. It's all things for all things. You have been given all in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for these precious and very great promises. 
God left to ourselves, we wouldn't believe then that they could be true. But because we've heard the word of God, and because the spirit of God is present now, present in those who have already believed, and present with those who have yet to believe. And Lord, I believe that you, Holy Spirit, have been here using your word and speaking to the hearts of men and women today, the hearts of youth today. God, you've been speaking to everyone in this room today, and you've been calling them to look to Jesus. And Lord, I believe that there are some here who have not been looking to Jesus. They've been looking to the world to satisfy them. They've been looking to themselves for their own righteousness and their own right standing. They've been blinded from the evil one who would not want us to see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. But I believe you're lifting the veil right now. I believe you're helping people right now by your spirit and by your word to believe in the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who gave it all, who died on a cross for our sins and who was buried and who rose from the dead. And and if you're here right now and you wanna place faith, you wanna say, I wanna obtain that. I want Jesus. I want a life of grace and peace. I want a life of glory and excellence. I wanna be called by God. If that's you, God's drawing you. Would you raise your hand so I can see to pray for you? See you right down there, praise the Lord. See you right back here. Praise God. And back in the, over there. Wonderful. Anyone else? Praise God. See you. If you raise your hand, pray this prayer with me right now, which is just a simple prayer to ask the God who's been speaking to you to come and make you a partaker of his divine nature. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God and Savior. I believe you died on a cross for my sin. I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin today and I turn to you, Jesus, the giver of grace and peace and life and glory and excellence. Lord, you've promised to give me all things and the greatest of which is you. So Lord, I pray for these who've just prayed that they would receive you, Jesus. God, thank you that all of the Holy Spirit now dwells in them, that they've become partakers of your divine nature this morning. In God's name we pray, amen, amen.